Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. You can ask any question that you want to ask. All you need to do is write down your question and then write it out, or write question before your question, write it out, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and go ahead and submit it. This Q&A is a supplement to the, the teaching of Calvary Tucson. In our last study, we talked about not being deceived. And in that study, we talked about rightly dividing the Word of God. And one of the questions that I received was, how do we write, make sure that we are rightly dividing God's Word? And this is a really good question, and I spend a little bit of time talking about it, but I want to go ahead and spend a little bit more time talking about it today. How do we rightly divide God's Word? Of course, the Bible tells us to do that. We want to make sure that we don't twist it. Peter said that there are those that twist scriptures, Paul's words he was making a reference to, as they do all the scriptures. And so people can twist them. And we want to make sure that we are not those who twist it. We don't want to listen to things people say when they twist the scriptures. And we want to make sure that we are not twisting it ourselves, but rightly dividing it. And context is one of the biggest keys. Context can answer most questions. For example, one of the questions that we get a lot is, what is grieving the Holy Spirit? And I'm sure there can be a lot of things that would grieve the Holy Spirit, but the passage that talks about it is talking about being loving, not being contentious or divisive or malicious against other believers. That when we as believers tear one another down and really come after each other, that grieves the Holy Spirit. So that's rightly dividing the Word of God. You read it in context, and then you take it from context. I think also approaching Scripture humbly, saying, I don't know that I always have, you know, we, we generally think a lot about ourselves, and we think, when I approach Scripture, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to figure it out. But taking time to read it and asking, do I really have it right? can help us to rightly divide the Word of God, make sure that we don't have any kind of strange things uh, that continue to happen because we, don't write, because we don't rightly divide it. Another thing is to make yourself familiar with the rest of Scripture. Read the Bible. Um, have the Bible read to you, maybe while you're driving so that you can be familiar with what it says. Memorize scripture. I encourage people at our church to get a Bible memory app on their phone because Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, the helper who I will send you, will bring all things back to your memory. So when we memorize scripture, then when we're looking at things, we can go, oh yeah, the Bible says this. It allows us to be able to use the resources that we've put into our mind to be able to make sure that we rightly divide God's Word. The last thing that we want to do is say something about God that is wrong We want, or, or that God didn't say. We want to be very careful to not speak for God. This is a mistake that I see a lot of Christians make. They'll say, God told me. Then they'll say something. And you wonder when they say it, I don't, I don't think that's from God. The Bible says, let one prophesy and let the others judge. We can judge as to whether or not we think it's from God because anybody can and, and people do say they're speaking for God when they are not. So we want to make sure that we are careful as we handle the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of God, comparing Scripture to Scripture, being prepared, loving His Word, and um, not being afraid if we make a mistake to back out of it and say, that's not what that passage meant. So it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here. If you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write your question out, reread it a couple of times, make sure it says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and um, submit it. It is good to see you guys. Um, looks like we do have a question from JG. Um, JG says, uh, does the synagogue of Satan mention in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 uh, persecute the church in modern times? Uh, that's a pretty good question. The synagogue of Satan. Um, I think that this is a passage that gets misused a lot and that people try to, to fit in 
whoever they can fit into it. And let's just go there and see if it, um, if Revelation 2.9, if the context helps us out who the synagogue of Satan is um, that persecutes the church. Okay, uh, this is the church at Smyrna. So the church at Smyrna is the persecuted church. Let me go and put that up on the screen for you. Um, and it says, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, these things says the first and the last who was dead and who is now alive. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. Even though they were poor, they had everything. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not and are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, the reason that this gets misused is because people that don't like Israel and that's anti-Semitic. I erased a, I removed a comment here recently off of our YouTube uh, page because they called the Jewish people the synagogue of Satan. Now, it says here they are Jews who are not. I don't think that means that they're not Jewish by person. I think it means that they are not genuine in serving God. And so they are of the synagogue of Satan. These are, are, are not genuine believers. They are the hypocrites that Jesus talked about from the synagogue of Satan. So let's go ahead. That is 2-9. Let's go back to your question here. Well, where was that at? Uh, all right. Oh, okay. The synagogue of Satan and 3-9 and th and as well. So let me just go. What do I got to do here to get to 3-9? I just got to go one over and let's see. Let me go ahead and bring that one up. We'll take a look at this one. And we'll see if that makes sense to 3.9. And this is to the church of, let me get back here, Philadelphia, which is the faithful church. Okay, so Smyrna was the suffering church. And it's interesting, the suffering church and the faithful church are the only two churches in Revelation that don't receive anything negative about them. So I put this back up on the screen for you. And um, let's read this in context. Let's just read it from the beginning here. He says, um, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these th things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I believe this is the door that is set before the church by which they are raptured out of. He says, I know you, um, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, one that no one can shut for you have a little strength and have kept my word to persevere and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, so same group of people, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet that I might know that I have loved you. Okay, so there's a historical setting for each of these churches, and that's the first setting that we wanna make sure that we are considering. And the early persecution of the church were by people like Paul who thought they were doing their zeal, they thought was for God. And so I think the answer to your question, does the synagogue of Satan mentioned in, in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 persecute the church in modern times? And I'm gonna say my understanding of, the str of strictly looking at this passage and what it means would be no. That th th this, was, this was in the times of the early church uh, before the destruction, I don't know if I'm going to say before the destruction of the temple, I'm going to say that there were there were synagogues all around the world, that people were dispersed even more so after the destruction of the temple. And there was a persecution that came out of Judaism, but these were not real Jews. They weren't doing what God had called them to do. They were Jewish, but it takes more than just being Jewish to be a real Jew before God, to really be Jewish before God. Um, in other places, he talks about those who are really of Israel and uh, uh, those who are real children of Abraham. So no, JG, I don't believe that they are uh, persecuting uh, the church today. All right. So thank you. I appreciate your question. Uh, fact check these hands says Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21 to store up heavenly rewards. But if part of my motivation for doing good is to gain a heavenly reward, uh, will the work still be eligible for the reward? Uh, yeah, I thought about this too. I thought about this as well. Back check these hands. Uh, that uh, what what is our motive for us doing 
the things that we're doing? And is the motive that we're helping people to be able to help them, then why would I want that heavenly reward? Or will I still get that heavenly reward? Jesus also talks about praying in secret. So your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And maybe that makes a little more sense because the reward openly could be directly connected uh, to the prayers. Um, but stacking up treasures in heaven, as opposed to stacking up treasures here on earth, uh, where uh, they can be destroyed, I think is really what Jesus is talking about. So even though the motivation for us helping people is not to be, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a heavenly reward. I'm, I'm stacking money up in heaven. Jesus is like, don't stack up treasures here on earth, but stack them up in heaven where you're going to get the rewards from them. I think it's the emphasis on don't stack them up here on earth, that that ends up being a waste because moth will destroy, inflation will eat away, right? Rust will come in and destroy whatever it is that it destroys. And so don't stack up for yourself treasures um, here on earth, but in heaven. And I think that that's the point. Not necessarily that I would have the motive that I want to do this because I get a reward in heaven. I think motives really matter. And the best motive and pure motive is that you really want to help people. And um, I think that Jesus is making a point here that is true. We get rewards that are up in heaven, but um, don't, don't waste the things down here, but invest them into people. And there will be a reward that will come from it. But yeah, the, the motivation should not be the rewards, but it should be really wanting to help people. Uh, so uh, thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate it. And it is good to see you guys. Uh, join us for our Wednesday Q&A. Uh, Jari, Jari says, and Jari, good to see you. Jari says, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord, or be absent from the body, is to be absent with the Lord. So what do our souls look like? Does Jesus know the time of his return now that he's in heaven? Why didn't God tell us the date? All right, so you got three questions in there, Jari. I like how you do that. Um, so number one, let's, let's deal with them in reverse order. How about we do that? All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and take this down and we'll deal with it. Uh, so first of all, um, why didn't God tell us the date? Uh, because we probably would have been prone to know Jesus doesn't come back until here. So I'm going to live this way today. But if I don't know the day or the hour that purifies me as my soul is pure, it causes me to go, I need to be ready all of the time because Jesus could come back at a moment that I don't expect him. He wanted the church to be living in that moment. And so Jesus says, you don't know when I'm returning that the Son of Man returns at an hour that you do not expect. And so be ready. So we have to stay ready. So I think that that he wanted us living in that kind of an environment. So he didn't tell us when he was going to return. Does Jesus know that he's going to return now that he's in heaven? Because Jesus has said not even Jesus nor the Father, nor, nor, not even the Son of Man nor the angels know the day of the Lord's return or, or of my return. However, it is that he words that. Um, and yeah, in his, in, as a human, as coming as a human, there were things Jesus didn't know. As a baby, he had to learn them. We also know that he knew things that a normal man doesn't know. He knew it was in people's hearts. So we knew that he accessed his deity, but for whatever reason, maybe as a, a way of aligning with us and identifying with us, he didn't know, know that time when he was going to return while he was here. But as he got up into heaven, I believe that he knows. Now, there's no way for us to know for sure because there's not a passage that tells us that. And so you could get different opinions when it comes to whether or not Jesus knows right now. But I think he knows right now. I think was it we got up into heaven, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's God. I think maybe he knew as soon as he was resurrected um, when he would return. All right. Um, and then we get to the intermediate state to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. So what do our souls look like? And the answer to that jar is they look like souls. Sorry. Um, I couldn't help that. Uh, we, we, I don't know. Do our souls wispy? Are souls different than spirit? 
the intermediate state? Are we unclothed? It seems that Paul made a reference to us not being unclothed in that intermediate state. Does God give us a temporary body while we're there? And by the way, that's what theologians call it, the intermediate state. When we die here and we're present with the Lord, we know that there are souls under the altar in the book of Revelation that, that cry out for vengeance on those that took their lives. Um, and so um, there's just no way for us to know what that intermediate state is going to be like. We do know, like you said, that we are going to be present with God. We know that we are not sleeping during this time. And so does God give us a temporary body? Um, spirits, the, God is spirit, but in the Old Testament, he showed up and talked with Abraham. And so he had a temporary body, or if it was a theophany, still would be a temporary body. It wasn't like the body that he was gonna come when he was Jesus. And um, so, yeah, we just don't know. We don't know what our souls look like. We don't know what our spirits look like. We're not even sure what that intermediate state is going to be like during that time. But we know that we are not going to remain um, unclothed. All right. So, um, Psych Man 45, good to see you, Psych Man. Psych Man says, uh, walk in the spirit. Verse, lately, I've noticed many people think denying the lusts of the flesh is how to walk in the spirit but walking with God, uh, this comes first. Yes. Um, thank you, Robert. Thank you, uh, Paul. I appreciate it. Or psych man, I appreciate it. Um, so if people think I'm going to walk in the spirit by denying the things of the flesh, that kind of takes away the power of what walking in the spirit does. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It doesn't say don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh and you will walk in the spirit. So we want to walk in the spirit. And we're going to, we, we get to the fruits of the spirit in our study tonight. And um, once again, he's going to say walk in the spirit. And it's because when we walk in the spirit, we have the fruit of the spirit. And one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control, which allows us to be able to overcome the deeds of the flesh. That's the power in walking in the spirit. Also, there's some other things uh, that we'll be pointing out in our study tonight, uh, psych man. Um, but yeah, no, you're you're reversing things, and now you're right back to square one. If your if your struggle is getting drunk, and you're just constantly thinking about not getting drunk, and that's what you're really just constantly thinking about. Uh, then you're not going to have power over it. And just by sheer willpower, you 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 make you're successful through the night. It doesn't mean you walked in the spirit. But if you walk in the spirit, then you are given self-control and you are caring and loving about people who are around you. And so then you have the power to be able to overcome these things. All right, psych man, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, walking in the spirit is the means by which we are given the power to overcome the deeds of the flesh and, um, and really interact with one another the way that we are supposed to. So Kimberly has a follow-up uh, about the synagogue of Satan. Kimberly says, could the synagogue of Satan be now be the ones who say they are Christians and are not? This was a great question from JG. Yes, it was, Kimberly. Thank you very much. Um, can the synagogue of Satan be Christians who say they are, but aren't? I think that the reason God used such strong words for them is because they were persecuting the church. Remember, Smyrna is the persecuted church and Philadelphia is the faithful church. And so those who were saying they were Jewish should not have been, were Jews, should not have been persecuting the church, but they were. And that's why they were of the synagogue of Satan. So are there Christians who say they're Christians, but are persecuting Christians? Are there, um, and if there are, I think that we could probably use similar terminology. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of what that might be. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of, of what that would be. There have been churches that have persecuted genuine Christians, burned them at the stake. Um, and I guess that kind of verbiage could be used against them. If that were the case, I wouldn't say that they should be called the synagogue of Satan. Remember, that's a Jewish term. We would probably want to change it to the church of Satan. 
So in church history, there have been a lot of Christians who have persecuted general, uh, genuine Christians. They gave their lives, not for persecution that came from those who claimed to not be Christians, but from those who claimed to be Christians. And so I think that we would call that the church of Satan rather than the synagogue of Satan, because it was Christians who were doing the persecution. All right, good follow-up, Kimberly. And I really do I really do like a follow-up to questions just for clarification. Um, so we have a question from Brandon. Um, Brandon says, hey, Robert, is praying with our eyes closed simply a tradition? Yes, praying with our eyes closed is definitely simply a tradition. Um, I... Uh, if, if when, when I've been praying in uh, a prayer meeting and I'm praying, I'm looking down, my eyes closed, I look up and I see somebody looking around while they're praying, it always is kind of weird to me uh, because it is so traditional. But yeah, bowing our heads and closing our eyes has to do with posture. And the Bible has not, nothing to say about posture. The most it says is let men everywhere lift up holy hands and pray. And um, when I was a kid, we had praying hands like this around my house. My mother loved to have me praying hands around. Um, I think it probably is like this, lifting up holy hands to pray. Um, lift up your eyes. The Bible talks about praying, lifting up your eyes. So these are postures in the Bible, but it's the posture of the heart. It's being humble that really matters and not whether you're kneeling before God, prostrate on the ground, which is, you find that in the Bible a lot, right? and they fell down on their face before the Lord. So you see that a lot, um, but it's the posture of the heart that really matters. And if you want to kneel down beside your bed and pray, if you want to lay down on your face and pray, if you wanna go out and look up to God, to heavens and call out to God, you can do that. The posture really doesn't matter. Uh, the helpful thing about closing our eyes is that it helps us from distractions. Because if I'm praying with my eyes open, I can be distracted. If I close my eyes and I pray, then I can focus a little bit better and I'm not distracted. But I don't know of any biblical passage that would even begin to tell us that we are supposed to close our eyes when we pray. All right, thank you very much. Um, let's see, Brandon, I appreciate that. Let's see. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and look for another question here. If you're joining us here for the very first time, really glad to have you. I uh, hope that you are blessed by the time that you're spending here. If you have a question, it can be on anything. Uh, if you have a question about one of our videos, or our previous Bible study, then you can ask that. But you can ask questions about apologetics, about the Christian life, about a personal situation that you're in, that you might just need some help with. And, and we, a lot of times we just need some help. We don't quite know how to handle something. And so if you have a question like that, then you can go ahead and ask it. Put the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of it, then write it out, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. All right, so uh, we have another question here. from What's Normal. What's Normal, good to see you. Uh, says, question, what rewards do you think we lose for not living for God? Well, um, not living for God. So I think about the Bema seat rewards that are talked about in Corinthians, where it says that everything we've done is tested by fire, and that which is wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away, and that which remains will be jewels. And I don't know that the jewels are literal jewels. People talk about five crowns in the Bible that are rewards. Interestingly, only one of them is a reward. And that's the crown of glory. <clears throat> that seems to be spoken of as given to pastors um, or to those that are doing the work of the gospel. I shouldn't just say pastors there. Um, so what rewards do you think we lose by not living for God? I think we, I think what's normal, we lose a lot of things. I think, I think we lose the benefits of living for God today when I'm not living for Him. There, and it might not always be the benefits we think. It might not always be for ourselves. It may be for other people, that other people are blessed 
when we live for him. And um, I don't know that when we live for him, we deserve any kind of reward for that. I'm thinking of a Keith Green song where he says, and when I'm doing well, help me never see to seek a crown for my reward is giving glory to you. And, and what a great song that is. It's, Oh Lord, you're beautiful is the name of Keith Green's song. But that's just such a powerful line. When I'm doing well, let me never seek a reward because my reward is giving glory to you. All right. So, um, I don't know that we get any rewards for uh, living for God. Um, living for God is a reward in itself. All right. Um, so good question, Jari. I almost brought in because I said good question. So Ashley has a question. Ashley says, uh, I keep hearing the term Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism being used in politics. It goes against what I read in the Bible. Is this part of the last days false deception? Uh, to this, I'm going to have to plead a little bit ignorant, Ashley. Um, Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism. Let me go ahead and just uh, give you some thoughts on what you're asking here. Uh, nationalism is when there's a movement to, you know, for America, it's, it's America, America first, nationalism. Globalism is when you are trying to work the whole globe together to make things happen for everybody that's on the planet. And that sounds good on the surface, but it seems that there's always those that are abusing other people. In um, China, there's been a lot of globalism that accepted China, but the, the slave labor or the, the cheap labor that you get is one of the reasons that we had deflation for so many years. Um, I have never heard the term Christian nationalism. I, uh, I don't want to ever uh, interact with, um, as a Christian nationalist, I'm a Christian, loves Jesus, wants to live a sacrificial life towards Christ. Uh, I am an American, but that's second. I'm passing through here. I don't belong here. And I think that we get too focused on this world. And I realize that, hey, you know what? You want to get a lot of views? You want to get a lot of views on social media? Then talk politics. Then do response videos to politics. You'll get a lot of views. But I'd have to answer to God for that. You we're passing through here. We are sojourners. And I, I want our nationalism to be about heaven. I can't think of a term to call it heavenism, um, heaven nationalism, uh, not any nationalism here on earth. I think that's a problem. Uh, the term uh, white nationalism, let's see, Christianism and Christian, white Christian nationalism sounds bad to me. <laughs> sounds like it might be like it's racist. Um, I, I don't know that it's wrong to go white Christian nationalism, black Christian nationalism, Asian Christian nationalism. I just don't know why we would put those kind of distinctions out there. The Bible says there's no Jew and there is no Gentile. And these words, although they might not mean it today, white Christian nationalism, have been put together under the Ku Klux Klan and um, white nationalism that is anti-Semitic and is racist. And I would just be really careful with that term. I'm not sure what that term means. Now, again, I may just be being ignorant when I say that. I'm just saying that's what it sounds like to me. And I would just want to be really careful with it. I'm not interested in being part of a nationalist movement. Um, personally, I think that we should build things here in the United States. Personally, I think it's a mistake to let other places like China make our antibiotics and the things that we need to be able to survive. We ought to make them here. So if we're ever at war with China or we ever get cut off from them, we're able to make them here. That's just personally. 
Uh, but I have no huge commitment to nationalism. As an American, I want to do my part, but I'm a Christian first. And um, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm not a white Christian nationalist. I am uh, I'm a Christian living for Christ, wanting to do what God has called me here to do first of all. And those two terms don't sound good to me. All right. And hey, I'm, I may be mistaken. Maybe they're maybe they are okay, but they don't sound good to me. There's there are things that I personally would want to stay away from. All right. So thank you very much. So um, Jari has a question. That's a follow up. Uh, are the things the Holy Spirit doesn't know that only the Father knows? Same with the Son. Thank you. Um, well, why Jesus was here, Jari, there were things he didn't know. So I've said before, when Jesus was born and laid in that manger, he didn't say, Mom, Dad, listen, you guys don't know this, but I created you. And I got things under control. And you may freak out about a few things, but but I'm going to go ahead and take care of them. Just ask me. No, he had to, He was a baby. He cried. He couldn't talk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk just like everyone else. And he grew in wisdom and understanding, it says in the book of Luke, so that he had to come to the point where he all of a sudden realized that he was God. Now, that's a weird thought. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but I remember when I first thought that. So he had to think, I think this passage in Isaiah is talking about me. And maybe his mom told him about his virgin birth and maybe showed him Isaiah. Who knows how all of that worked together. Um, but the, are there things the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit is God, knows everything. Jesus right now uh, is not, he's the glorified, uh, in his glorified human body and knows all things. That's my personal opinion. And so I don't think there's anything the Holy Spirit knows or that the Father doesn't, that they, they all know all the same thing because it's God in three persons all making up God, right? <clears throat> so they all know, all right? So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, Jari. So we have a question here from um, Kimberly. Kimberly says, um, hi, Pastor. Hi, Kimberly. Good to see you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, I can't bear the thought of this judgment. Could you explain? So I'm uh, I'm not terrified anymore. Sure, I'd love to. Um, so uh, 2 Corinthians, let me, let me get this here. Let me go ahead and I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, let's come back here. Second Corinthians five. And then let me go ahead and get here to the section, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, okay, let's start there. So I'm going to go ahead and pull this up for you. Uh, so we are starting here in verse nine. Therefore, make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Uh, we persuade men, but we will, but we are known to God. And I also trust we are well-known in our consciences. So I can understand how that would be a little terrifying. Each of us would receive things done in the body according to what he has done. If we're making our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So we're talking about Christians. We're talking about having to stand and answer uh, for the things that we are doing. And uh, that indeed is a, a little bit scary. Um, let's see. If, uh, it goes on to talk about being reconciled to God. Let's go ahead and look at that. Uh, for we do not command our uh, commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. Okay, that we may answer the boast of your heart. So I don't know if that's going to be any more help to us about um, about this judgment seat that we stand before. We know it's talked about in other places as as our rewards that what we do, the things that we do, right? Therefore, make it our aim that present or absent to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. So we know that those are motives and that they're being burned, they're being tested by fire. And uh, um, I'm uh, trying to explain it to you so that 
uh, you are not terrified by what's here. What did I do here? Let me look here really quick and see what I did here. See if I can fix this. Well, let's just go here. How about that? We'll just abandon that one. What do we got here? All right. We still got that. We still got that. Okay. So there we go. Um, yeah. So Kimberly, I'm not sure. Um, second Corinthians, I can't bear the thought of this judgment. I, I can understand that standing before him and, but you know what? He is full of grace and love. He died on the cross for your sins. You're talking about what you receive as rewards. Uh, I would, you will stand before your loving savior who demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross for you while you were still a sinner. He demonstrated that kind of love. So knowing that he is full of love and goodness and his thoughts indeed are good towards us, I, I think should not make us fearful. Uh, this is our rewards that are being tested to receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Um, yeah, whether we have the right motives or not, that's my understanding of what this is. So wh whatever that is, and I'm sure that I will be disappointed in things that I have done, but also they're under the blood of Christ. So um, the, the rewards here, whether good or bad, maybe talking about whether or not the motives were good and bad in what we do. All right, hopefully that will be helpful uh, to you, Kimberly. Um, understand his great love for you as his child. You're a child of God and he cares deeply about you. And uh, Jesus demonstrated his love for you by dying for you. And um, when we humble ourselves before him, he forgives us and does uh, those kind of works towards us, um, those good things towards us. So it's always a good thing. So hopefully that will help to comfort you. I don't think you have to be afraid of this um, when it happens. Although saying all that, I can understand why you would be, I will be a little bit apprehensive as well. All right. So um, we have a question here from uh, Annika. Annika, good to see you. Um, what is the most effective way to witness to someone in a cult who believes the relationship with Jesus is what saves, but doesn't see why other things are important like the Trinity or the virgin birth. Um, I wish Annika, yeah, you give me a, a little bit more information. I know you might be trying to protect um, whoever this is who might see this. Um, I would love to know what cult they're in that can help me to be able to help you to know whether or not um, how, how to witness to them. Uh, they believe a relationship with Jesus is what saves, but doesn't see why the things are very important, like the Trinity or the virgin birth. So it seems like they don't have a real strong respect for scripture. And if they don't believe in the Trinity, so this might be like uh, someone like the, the people who believe in, um, uh, I'm trying to think of what the name of the church is. I don't want to say the wrong name of a church when it's wrong. Um, but let me just go ahead and uh, talk about this a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll hit some things on the nose here. Uh, I would, <clears throat> if I was witnessing to someone that is in a cult is going to have to be led by the spirit. It is going to most times be ineffective because they believe that what they believe is right. Now that's not to say that people have never been witnessed to and taken out of cults. Uh, but I, I see all the time that I've spent at the door talking to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses as being fruitless. Um, I also see my time talking to someone who believed in baptismal regeneration. And I spent a lot of time trying to persuade them that it's not just being baptized, that you have to be born again. Because I didn't think that he was born again. And I saw that as fruitless as well. Um, and, and who knows, maybe in the end, he's gone since gone to be with the Lord. So maybe in the end, it was helpful. Um, I mean, I think you just got to, Annika, pray that God would give you opportunities. And then you want to deal with the person of Jesus, which when you say they don't see other things important like the Trinity, they're probably not seeing Jesus as God. 
And so you pray about opportunities to show them. And if I were going to sit down and witness someone has having conversations with them, I would make the person of Jesus the big deal. That's what I always do uh, when I am witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses and they want to talk to me about hell or about something else. I say, let's just put that aside. Let's talk about the person of Jesus because that's where we differ. And if we can figure that out, we might be able to get somewhere. So feel like I haven't been that helpful to you. Annika, if you want to give me a little bit more information, if you want to tell me who the who it is you're talking about, um, I think I know, but I don't want to make the wrong reference and say something bad about someone when it isn't the right group that I'm thinking of. All right. So thank you very much. All right. So um, we have a, a continuation of the question from Kimberly. Second Corinthians uh, 5, 10. We talked about that. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. Um, yeah, so we've, we've talked about that, Kimberly. And I don't know that I've been that helpful to you, but just know that he's your father. He loves you and he cares about you. And um, maybe this judgment seat is necessary. Um yeah, for whatever for whatever reasons, um, that each one may receive things done in the body, that each one may receive things done in the body and according to what he has done. So it's rewards. You're given rewards. It's the bema seat because um, everyone is given them. And um, so if all that I've done for Christ since the time that I was a, a teenager, born again, as a as a Sunday school teacher, as a youth pastor, as a senior pastor will all be piled up and put to the test. And if it's wood, hay, and stubble, then so be it. They'll be taken away. And whatever remains, I, I like to think, and I don't know that this is true or not, but I like to think that whatever remains, I would give to him as a gift anyway, because it was done for him. It was done with the right motive. And so I could take those jewels and toss them down before the throne, like the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. And um, because it was honestly done for him. It wasn't done to receive a reward. That's why they are not wood, hay, and stubble. So um, you can be confident, Kimberly. He's he's going to be talking. He's going to be putting a test to the motives, and everybody is going to have things that are burned away. Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, um, Billy Graham. Okay, there's nobody that is going to be have the things lit on fire, and nothing's going to be burned away. Some people have a lot piled on and most of it burned away. But remember, at this point, we're not trying to, we're not putting on any facades. We're known as we are known. And we're just being honest about who we are before him. And I think that becomes something uh, that is very powerful. Okay. Um, let's see. All right. So let's go ahead and find another question here. I was reading one that I thought was a question, but it wasn't. Uh, all right, so we have another follow-up coming back to 2 Corinthians 5.10, which I still have pulled up, so I can share the scripture again. Uh, follow-up, 2 Corinthians 5.12, each one wants to receive what is due us, both good and bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I see that. So let me just go ahead and pull it back up again, here, and we'll read it here again. All right, make sure I get the right one. All right, so... Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. Not, um, this is the testing of, of your motives behind what you did, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men uh, that we are known to God and also trust as, as will be in your conscience. Let me just read that last verse again. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are all well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your conscience. So I think he's talking to us about what we're doing for him, doing it in, in the right manner. Make it our aim, whether present or absence, to be pleasing to God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat, where our motives are tested. Each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so what would make what would make a good work that we've done bad? 
I think maybe maybe this is where we can really kind of take a look at this, Kimberly. What would make a good work that we've done bad? Um, and that would be the motives. So if Jesus said, when someone stands and prays to be heard by men, they have their reward because men heard them. And so if I'm doing what I'm doing to be seen by people, rather than an honest motive to help them out, it's bad for me to do it to be seen by people. So what I'm doing is bad. However, it's coming across as being good. And one day it will be tested. God's just not gonna let it stand being good and bad together, but it's eventually going to be revealed. And again, it's something that I don't think that we need to be afraid of. I mean, we're we're gonna be standing before him as we are known by him and, and we know him and we see him. So um, hopefully that answers the questions, Kimberly. I realize that I may be a little insufficient on that particular question. All right, then sorry about that. Uh, Barbara says, good to see you, Barbara. Question follow-up. Is saying that God is neither male nor female, also that Yah is feminine and Wei is masculine? in Yahweh is in Yahweh is this false doctrine um is it a false doctrine i i don't think it's true i don't think Yahweh is true just like people that say Yahweh is us breathing it's not true it's not the way things are said in hebrew um, and I have never heard that Yah is feminine and Wei is masculine. Um, we know God as being our heavenly father. And so I, I'm assuming that you've heard this from someone, that Yah is feminine and Wei is masculine. Um, I don't know Hebrew good enough to be able to give you that answer. That's out of my lane. I just don't know it good enough uh, to be able to answer that. I do know people that I can ask and I know how to research it. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit of research on uh, the name Yahweh and see whether or not it, it is in the masculine or feminine in the Hebrew. I know in Greek, you could tell masculine and feminine, um, but um, let me look that up. All right, uh, Barbara, let me take some time to look it up. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say God presents himself as a father, Jesus became a man. The Bible talks about he, God in the he reference. And so people that want to try to make him a mother image or a her are doing damage to the scriptures, specifically, specifically to the picture that God's trying to give us of himself. And um, people are confused about pronouns now. So trying to maybe somehow push these confusion of pronouns over to God um, might be might be the struggle. All right. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, sorry, I'm not more help at this point. I'll take a little bit of look in that. I've never heard that. And if that's false doctrine, I'd like to look at it and at least say, see what they're saying and then uh, be able to refute that for you. All right. So um, Barbara has a follow-up, uh, follow-up, uh, just a backstory. I am a caregiver and, uh, and need to make a decision about my decision to accompany my client to her church Bible study. Okay, and so is her church Bible study saying these things, Barbara? You wanna give me another follow-up on that? Um, so I'm just going to go back here a little bit and see if I can find your question again. Um, so if you're a caregiver for a person and you need a client to go to a Bible study, would I go with someone that I was a caregiver for to their Bible study if they belonged to a cult? Um, or we're receiving false teaching? That's a really interesting question. Um, again, I'd hate to project things. I just don't know enough. I hate to project things uh, when I don't know enough about the group. There would definitely be groups I wouldn't go to. 
but there would definitely be groups I would. And um, so I just don't think I know enough, Barbara, maybe you can give me um, some more information. Uh, we have a little bit of time left. Maybe you can follow up and give me a little more information about what group it is. Uh, so we have a, a question for fact check these hands. Good to see you fact check these hands. Does scripture include that God will meet believers basic needs during the birth pains prior to the rapture? Uh, famine, for example. Um, yes, I think it does. And so I think that's in Matthew six where Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him and you seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. God will take care of our needs. Does that mean I'm never gonna be hungry? Does that mean I'm never gonna be thirsty? No, but it means that God will give me the things that I need. And um, I think that we can we can apply that. I think that God will take care of us um, as these birth pains come up. Um, could um, have Christians ever lived in a time of famine and died because they didn't have enough food? And the answer to that is probably yes. And so where does that go with what Jesus said, be about my business and I'll be about your business. Um, and maybe the answer to that is no, I don't know. Maybe God's always taking care of people uh, that are truly his in the midst of famine. We know sicknesses, people die from that. Um, has anybody, a Christian's ever starved to death? I would think they probably did. So what does that mean towards Matthew 6, where Jesus says, um, your father knows what you need before you ask him and ask him. Maybe he's just talking about normal times of living that we're gonna have what we need. Um, I, I do think that we can expect God to provide for us even during these birth pains. Think about people getting caught in war and how war might end up really hurting them even though they're genuine Christians. Doesn't mean we won't ever suffer or won't ever have problems or trouble. I think Jesus is talking about, I'm just talking my way through it. And this is what you've got to do with a lot of these questions is try to kind of get where you're at and, and talking my way through it may indeed be the best way to, to finally get to an answer. Fact check these hands like, I don't know. Um, I can see that God would meet needs as he said that he would, but I could also see that you could face difficulty and a problem and trouble and um, end, end up losing your life because you're in the middle of a war. And even though wars are birth pains, right? So, um, sorry, sometimes I just feel like um, not very helpful in the questions uh, that are asked and, and just trying to answer them honestly. You know, I could become dogmatic about something, but I don't want to be dogmatic when I'm not sure whether or not it's it's the, the right or wrong answer to it. I think that we can count on God meeting our needs and that we want to be about his business and we've got to make sure that we are about his business because he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. But there are people that die um, to, due to exposure. There are Christians that die due to exposure because that's just God has a time for them uh, that he's going to take them. All right. So um, we have a question from Keep It Real, which I like. I like your name. Keep It Real. I think it's really important for us to all be real. I think it's real important for us to be real. Uh, what does it mean to take your crown? Revelation 3.11. I am coming soon. Hold to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at, I think that this is the church, again, the faithful church, right? Let me go ahead and bring that up here. So this is, yeah, so it's 311, right? That, that was your question, keeping it real? Let me make sure I got the right passage. Uh, yeah, 311. So let me get there. I'll get you back over here. Okay. All right. So um, let's start in nine. Um, indeed, well, that's that's what we read about the synagogue of Satan. Ten, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So that's the promise of being kept from the 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 uh, for the rapture. That as the faithful church, because we've been preserved him, I will also keep you from the hour of trial 
And that's the way it phrases the tribulation period in different places in the Bible as well. Luke 21, as we're going to see, as we're in Luke 21 now, um, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. So this is the faithful church. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more and write his name. And then it goes on. Okay. So what is the the crown um, that no one would take your crown? Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one take your crown. So again, this is the the Church of Philadelphia. I think this is the one that he says you have a little strength. Am I right? Um, let's see if we can get back to the beginning of this. And to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, right, these things says he was holy, he was true, he has the keys to David, he who opens and no one shuts, it shuts and no one opens. I know your works, I see. You have before me an open door and no one can shut it, and you have a little strength. So um, maybe he's saying, this crown is a, is a small reward and hold fast to what you have so that your crown's not taken from you because they have a little strength. And I believe that we are the Church of Philadelphia, by the way. And if we are the Church of Philadelphia, the fact that it says that we have a little strength is a bit discouraging, right? We want to have a lot of strength. The last final faithful church. Um, and when you do a study on the crowns in the Bible, uh, there are different reasons for the crowns. So there's not any just one particular reason for them. Uh, like I said, some people try to make them rewards. They're not necessarily rewards. Um, but there is the crown of glory, which is. So maybe he's talking about the rewards. The crown would be the reward. Don't let anybody take your rewards. Um, stand fast and true. Don't let anyone take your reward. Uh, that could be. Uh, that could be it. All right, so thank you, uh, keeping it real. I appreciate that. Annika has a follow-up. All right, here we go. This is what I was looking for. Follow-up, William Brown is the cult I'm referring to. The other thing he, that he um, doesn't appreciate, people telling him what they believe is the only way because he says, how can we really know what's true? All right, so William Branham. Uh, yeah, William Branham was a false prophet. Uh, he declared people to be healed and they weren't. He was part of the Pentecostal charismatic movement that led, brought forth a lot of false prophets. He also said that he was, it was popular in those days for people in his position to say that they were Elijah. And he was much more, um, he was much more mainstream when he was younger, but then as he got older, he denied the Trinity and um, there were just a lot of false teaching. He believed in the serpent seed which is that Mary is that that Eve had sex with the serpent, which which when you get into the text, when you try to read the text that way, it makes no sense that, that it's a metaphor for a sexual relationship. Uh, there were major problems with William Branham and uh, the people that that follow him are really hard to deal with a lot of times. Um, I just try to really tell them, look, you know, kind of like I do with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was a false prophet that added to the word of God and their prophecies that he gave that didn't come true. And, and same with William Branham. And so if William Branham said to someone, you're healed, God told me you're healed, and that person died of that disease and wasn't healed, then that makes him a false prophet. And that's the way that I try to do that. Um, I would, all right, let me, let me go ahead and tell you how I would, how I would deal with this, Annika. Um, I would tell him it's Jesus Christ that saves you and you need to have faith in him and you need to trust in him. Don't put your trust in a man like William Branham, put your trust in Christ. And that's what I would just kind of try to try to really reiterate again and again, put your trust in Christ, call out upon his name, ask him to forgive you of your sins and maybe encourage him to turn away from wrongly dividing the word of God and a lot of these false teachings uh, that William Branham, it may, it may do good for you to be able to do some research. There's a lot of it on the internet about William Branham that you can find a lot of information about the things that he taught uh, that were wrong. 
he spent some time in, in Arizona. He spent some time in Tucson. He spent some time up on the Catalina Mountains in one of his prophecies up in the Catalina Mountains. And so there are a lot of people here that are still Brahmanites and who believe the message, which is what the Brahmanites believe. All right. So um, thank you guys very much for joining me for this Q&A. Um, sorry that a couple of the questions I just didn't have answers to, but I think that that's going to happen if you're trying to answer honestly and not be a know-it-all. Act like you just ask me any question and I'll be able to tell it to you. I just want to answer them um, correctly and properly. I appreciate you guys. Uh, we have a church service here in about an hour. We're going to be talking about the fruits of the Spirit. But we're going to be talking about what the fruits of the Spirit what's the context for the fruits of the spirit and this might be very insightful that um what the context is because it will really help us to understand how the fruits of the spirit can really help it help us uh all right so um we do have a question here from rod is there a judgment seat for believers and a second judgment seat for non-believers the answer to that is yes very simple you've got the white judgment throne that at the end of everything, after the millennium period, there's the second, there's the second resurrection referred to as the second death, and the great and the books are open and they're judged. The, the, the judgment for us is our motives. The judgment for them is their lives. All right. So again, uh, I see other questions here. I appreciate you guys. Sorry we didn't get to them all. Um, we have another Q&A on Saturday, Lord willing. I look forward to being there with you guys. Love you. Uh, looking forward to our passage tonight and covering uh, the context of, of Galatians chapter 5 and the fruits of the Spirit as well as the fruits of the Spirit tonight. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus and um, rightly divide the word of God. And we will see you later on. I'm out.